Chase, you got a copy, Chase. Yeah, go ahead. Eleven minutes, Tom. I'll be over in a minute. Time, temperature, and concentration. Read the work order. Safety glasses. You're not done with that yet? Hey, put on some gloves. Can you please just follow the process? Make sure you put your respirator away. Solvent rags go over the side of the trash can. Where's your wet film gauge? Make sure you're putting tags back on the parts. Did you milk check that? Put your tools away. This Chase. Welcome to KazerCast episode 12. Today we have a special guest uh, coming up on the podcast, uh, Stu Snyder. Uh, he is a sprint car driver. Uh, from Lincoln, Nebraska, and he races all over the Midwest. And uh, we work with him quite a bit. We do a lot of powder coating on his parts for a sprint car. He also works um, for a company here in Lincoln, Lincoln Machine, and we do a lot of powder coating um, for all of the machine work that they do. They build all kinds of different types of machines, so we have a really good relationship with them. Um, kind of always known of Stu and knew of his name, uh, I w he's op always been open wheel racing when I raced, it was all, um, stock cars and dirt late models. Uh, so I didn't really get to know him very well until we started, uh, doing a lot of work with Lincoln machine. But since then we've developed a pretty good relationship, always fun talking to him when he's down at the shop. Um, and we recently, this year we started, uh, helping him out with the powder coating on his car. So that's been fun. But before we get to that, uh, do a little open discussion, I was mentioning to Chloe last week that I had a really good idea for a theme, um, something to try to help customers understand what we do at Kaiser. Uh, everybody always thinks that like, oh yeah, you powder coat and you paint. Like that's, that's the culmination of what you do and that's what they know us for. But in reality, I think that we're a sanding and pretreatment company or sanding surface prep pretreatment company comma, powder coating, liquid coating. So like, it's kind of like we, the bulk of what we do is surface prep and pretreatment. Then we also powder coat and paint. Whereas most people think that we um, just powder coat and paint and like, oh yeah, you might do a little bit of pretreatment, but it's actually the opposite. We do a ton of surface prep and pretreatment. And then we also just put a coating on it at the end. That's actually the easy part um, that, in the grand scheme of things, honestly, the coating portion doesn't really matter. I mean, it does, but it doesn't matter as much as the pretreatment. So what do you think about that, Chloe? I think that's an amazing theme. Um, I think it's also super relevant to our hiring process right now because you and I have talked about the fact that we tell all of our interviewees that like there's just so much manual labor involved in this position, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we get it, we get it. And then after a week on the job, they're like, wow, we didn't expect this much manual labor. And I think that, you know, it's because of just the amount of surface prep that they're having to do. Um, when someone applies to a powder coating position, they picture themselves, you know, in Jay Wills's role, 
with the powder gun standing roughly in the same spot, you know, for the most part during the day spraying when actually it's like you're moving parts around, you're hanging them, you're pre-treating them, you're packaging them after they're done. It's like all of that physical labor is probably 90% of the job. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, when you compare like how good a coating is done, um, the reason why people forget about surface prep and pre-treatment is because you don't get to see that the coating goes over top. And so if the coating looks good and it's smooth, then, you know, they just take it as like, that's a really good powder coated part. But like, since you don't know how the surface prep was done, you don't know how the pre-treatment was done. And the customer doesn't have a really good way to evaluate that by like I, um, Mm -hmm. then they just, it's hard to compare that. And so like, then when we quote a project at Kaiser, our quotes usually come in higher because we're spending like double the amount of time with a project because we're doing all the surface prep and pre-treatment um, compared to some of our competitors. And right. basically the surface prep and pre-treatment um, is going to help with the longevity uh, of the corrosion protection and making sure that the powder doesn't flake off yeah. or that it doesn't allow rust to start underneath the coating and then it bubbles up and flakes off. Um, so yeah, I think that that uh, maybe we misnamed our business as Kaiser Blasting and Coatings. Maybe we should have called it Kaiser Pretreatment. But I think when right. we first started, we didn't, uh, when we, like for the powder coating side, we didn't realize how how important pretreatment was going to be. Um, we learned that pretty quickly um, through some r- really good resources. And Bill Townsend turned into a good friend. Um, he's really, really well versed in chemicals and pretreatment. Um, and I would say most of what we've learned in the five or six years that we've been powder coating, which really isn't that long in the grand scheme of things, but most of what we've learned is actually on the pre-treatment side um, where we can uh, continuously improve and tweak and make better. Um, I, I would say most of our improvements have come there and it's unfortunate because our customers don't get to see that they're reaping the benefits of it um, with long-term durability but they don't necessarily realize it and they definitely don't get to see it. Um, but that's why I get so excited about pretreatment and I like doing themes on it. So yeah, I think an upcoming thing theme will be on that and maybe we'll get Bill back on, uh, mm-hmm. an upcoming Kaiser cast and talk to him some more. He does a really good job about like bringing it to real world, like and explaining what pretreatment does. You know those um, comparisons that they used to do in like health class, where they take the McDonald's fries and leave them out on a counter for a year, oh. um, next to like homemade French fries that deteriorate after you know a normal number of days, whereas like the McDonald's ones stick around forever. Yeah, um, and it's supposed to make you wonder like what's actually in them. It's clearly not super healthy for me. Um, I wonder if we could do something like that with like a Kaiser lawn chair versus you know a non-Kaiser lawn chair set them outside for a year and then check back in and see, because that's probably the point at which you notice whether someone took their time with pretreatment or not. Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of tests um, that get done on big commercial jobs um, to test basically pretreatment and corrosion protection. And those are done on, it's boring, but it's on little small panels that might be five inch by five inch or maybe even smaller. Um, they get pretreated, coated, and then they get put in, um, like environmentally controlled cabinets, typically called a salt spray cabinet. And then they stay in there for a certain amount of time, you know, and they and maybe they've done different pretreatment on different panels. 
and uh, like every so many hours in the cabinet, they check them to try to evaluate. And and we've got some salt spray testing coming up um, just for our own knowledge that we're going to be doing um, just to see if we see where we're at, see if we can improve on that. And so we'll take some pictures and uh, we're going to be comparing some just uh, not we won't be comparing like pre-treatment and no pre-treatment but we're going to compare some different like chemicals and different um uh how do i want to say it different ways that we can put uh chemicals together or different stages and see where our corrosion protection falls out and to see where we can improve that or see if there's any areas where we're spending too much time and it's not actually giving us a gain um those will be a little less interesting than like seeing uh lawn chair that still looks good and a lawn chair that's super rusty um, but it'll, it's a real good controlled environment to like show direct comparison. So we could throw, what we'll do when we do that is we'll throw some panels in, um, with like no pre-treatment at all. Um, That's so, awesome. so then we can actually see like what that actually does. That's cool. Who's doing that for us? Um, a couple of the chemical companies that we're going to be working with. I'm not going to say That's their great. names right now, but we're going to, we'll try it with, uh, probably with both of them. Like they both have access to testing. So, um, that's awesome. So, you mentioned that, uh, our hiring just a little bit ago. Um, yes. So, what I think that your tip, uh, social media tip of the day or tip of the week is has something to do with our hiring. Yeah. So, we've been, I mean, we've been looking for good help since I started. I think that's kind of an ongoing thing. Um, but more than ever right now, because everybody is hiring more than ever right now. And we've had a lot of really good luck with a website called HireClick, um, which from what I understand from their website is focused primarily in the Midwest. I want to say they said South Dakota to Iowa or something like that. Um, but it's kind of this like one-stop shop. Um, you create a little landing page, you post your jobs, and then they disseminate it across other hiring platforms, including some like ZipRecruiter, um, and some of the other ones uh, that you would have to pay for separately. And we've had such a good return on that, Jace. Um, would you agree? It's been like more than any we've ever tried. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, we uh, like dozens of applicants. Yes, yes. So we learned about them through another local business, small business that was using them. Um, they referred them to us. The guy up there, I think he's one of the owners. Um, his name is Matt. And uh, I reached out to him, and um, yeah, ever since we started using them, it's been working good. I don't know exactly how what formula they're they're using to make it like pop up at the top of boards, but I do know it goes across a lot of different job boards, and it's extremely economical um, in comparison mm -hmm. to some of the other ones out there. And yeah, I agree with you. We've tried a lot of different things, um, and we do even some of our own ads through Facebook, just through our own pages. And it seems like um, the higher click one has been going the best. So we kind of settled in on that. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where we're at. But yeah, I would agree with you. We, we've been getting a ton through higher click. And really high quality applicants. And um, we receive their resumes as well, which I super appreciate. Yeah. Okay, so our guest today on KaiserCast episode 12 is Stu Snyder. Um, known Stu from racing days, we've raced different types of cars. Uh, I always race stock cars, and he races open wheel. Um, he also works for one of our 
really good powder coating customers, Lincoln Machine. Um, and uh, we do a lot of powder coating for Stu's race car parts. We got Stu on the line. How are you doing today, Stu? Doing all right, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's kind of been, uh, these, these podcasts are always a good time, and it's always nice to do a little bit of, you know, promotional stuff for me and promotional stuff for you guys at the same time. Yeah, we've really enjoyed working with you over the years. Um, in this last year, uh, worked with you guys a little bit more, and you did some posting on your pages for us. And I know Chloe was following that pretty close and was going back and forth with you on stuff with that. And I think that turned out really good, don't you think, Chloe? Oh, yeah, that's been great. You're the first uh, celebrity we've ever sponsored for anything, so we were excited. Well, I, I wouldn't say celebrity, but, you know... It's... <laughs> It's, it's it's nice on on our end you know as well having having you guys come on board and help us and and it you know it does cost a lot of money to get stuff powder coated and, and to make it look good and to keep it looking good throughout the year you know with, with the amount of abuse these cars and wings take and we've had some issues throughout the years um with with stuff flying off you know when it gets hit and everything else and and it's amazing to say, you know, it's probably not amazing, but just you know, just normal for somebody to say it doesn't happen with Kaiser's products. It never has. And and uh, I was really grateful that you guys jumped up a little bit and helped us out this year on, on all that stuff. And, and like uh, like Jay said, trying to trying to, you know, do as much promotional as we can back for you guys and bring more guys to your guys' front door. That's great. So that's awesome. And on the topic of racing, I just kind of was curious because I know you and Jace go way back. Um, would you mind walking us through your childhood, your hobbies as a kid, and when and how you got into racing in the first place? Yeah, so uh, so back when I was just a little kid, probably about the age of my son, he's two, and, you know, we were always at the races and, and watching and whatnot, and then probably five or six, dad got the opportunity to start working kind of as a crew chief uh, for Jeff Lowry. Um, he was a Speedway Motors 45 car. And, you know, so I was always kind of around the race shop and whatnot. And and uh, when dad was doing that, he was over at Ron Love's uh, shop fabricating, you know, helping Ron fabricate stuff. Because uh, at the time, Easy Racing was like the number one chassis manufacturer for micros around this area. So I... I uh, I grew up at the Love Shop and I grew up at the Lowry Shop and it was just kind of it's kind of bred into you I guess that you know this is it's something cool and it's it's addicting it's you get the high the highs the lows all you know sometimes all in the same night and it's just something that that kind of drags you in but but I think if I remember correctly we were Dad was designing the junior sprint for me. Um, when I was when I was twelve or, or thirteen, I think, and and I think Jace, you guys ended up buying that because we went the other route. I had ran a few go kart races for uh, Sonny Manley and Mark Snook, and then we had bought a sprint car, and that junior sprint still was sitting over there at Ron's, and I think that was your first junior sprint. It might have been. I know we got ours, my first junior sprint from the Grossenbachers, but I know it wasn't easy. So maybe he was the one that kind of, yeah, one way, because there wasn't very many of those built. And I, I know dad was, you know, they, um, 
I can't think of the guy's name right off the top of my head, but he was kind of a known builder and, and you know, Ron hadn't made any. He was just building the normal micros and they kind of hopped into, okay, help me out, do some, you know, put both of our heads together and try and make a, a different version of a, of a junior sprint off of the micro and, and, uh, you know, they, they got together and whatnot and they built this thing up and, I, I, I could have swore it ended up with you at some point. Yeah, I think you know, it did. Like I said, yeah. there wasn't very many of them out there, and I always I thought that was cool. And then, you know, getting to know you, right, you know, you were running the, the door cars with the late models and stuff, and, and we were the open wheel, and, you know, just... So you never raced uh, micro sprints then? No, I, I never ran micros, like, as I was coming up in the ranks. We just went from, we went from go-karts straight to a sprint car. And I don't know if it was a great idea or a bad idea or, or what, you know, I ended up getting fired out of the go-kart. Um, <laughs> kind of a funny story there. I, I started getting really good at it and I started getting really fast and, and some other people had started seeing that and, uh, Stuart Alley and, and John Gable house, they, you know, they knew each other for years and, and John and, and Mikey were kind of helping me a little bit. And we had an issue with an engine and, and, Mike and John just went down to Stewart's trailer when Billy was running, I think it was like his last year in carts or whatnot. And, and the next thing I know, I've got a different engine bolted on the car and, and here we go, you know, and, and uh, I don't think the owner liked that very much. We went out, we were really fast. I think we ended up second in the main and, and then that just kind of fizzled out. And I was still, I was still helping dad work on Lowry's car. We ended up buying one of Lowry's old cars um, that he had he had been successful in. So we, we knew it was a good car. And, you know, like I said, with Dad and me working on it, we knew how, how to make the thing work. So I didn't really have any of those bad, bad or good, um, you know, tendencies of, of running a micro as opposed to running the sprint car with, with any of those bad habits. I never, I never had any of those. I just went straight to a sprint car and, we're going to see what happens. And, and, uh, I actually worked for, for Gable house is it for a couple of years there. I had to, cause I wasn't old enough yet to run Eagle weekly when in the 360. So I worked for Mike and John, um, as their crew chief on, on their operation for a while. And then I got old enough. I said, all right, well, I'm gonna go have some fun now. So what, like what year was that when you started racing in a full size sprint car? I started racing full size in 2000. I think we had two races in 2002, a couple, a couple more in 2003. Um, well, I guess 03. So I think it might have been 2001. Then I think we ran like one race at the end of the year um, in some little track. Uh, like I think it was Stewart, Nebraska, uh, Riviera Raceway. That was where my first sprint car race was because uh, they didn't check any IDs or nothing like that, you know. I don't even how, know they added how old were you? Time. I was 14. Yeah, I was either 13 or 14. Okay. How old were you we supposed to be? That. Well, now you're supposed to be 16 um, to run a, a lot of the bigger series and whatnot. And I think, I think 14 is the IMCA race saver rule um, for their age limit, for, you know, for their insurance and whatnot. So, so we raced as much as we could kind of under the radar. And then 2003 was my first full year at Eagle. And then we also did the Eagle Sprint Car Touring Series 
which kind of toured around some of these other tracks around the area and, and a little bit over into Iowa and a little into South Dakota. And then in 04, we went straight on the road with a, with the NCRA tour and we were, we were pretty successful towards the end of the year. I wouldn't say we were super great early, but we ended up, I think fourth or something in points and got the rookie of the year with the NCRA and, I've always kind of liked traveling more than running the same place week in and week out. You know, even even when we have done that, um, we still like to mix it up and, and hit a Friday or a Thursday or a Sunday somewhere else just to to keep you fresh and it doesn't get you in a rut at one race at one racetrack. Um, you know, it, it just gives you a little edge, I think, if you've been to other places, been able to see how that track works to to how you're doing, you know, at the other racetrack and, and track conditions and stuff like that. I just think it helps you. So at what point in all of this did you and Jace meet? I mean, did you meet through racing or did you know each other from elsewhere? I mean, we knew each other through the racing deal. I think, I think when I was, when my other hobby, you know, going back to the hobbies that you guys wanted to know, I was a wrestler in high school and in grade school and all the way till my senior year. Um, but I think, Jace, you were a little under me. I think you and Chauncey actually wrestled more around um, Bodfield, my my uh, 305 guy. Yeah. Um, I think you guys wrestled with him more than, than me. I think I was either a junior or a senior. Or I might have even been out of there by the time you guys were wrestling. And we were probably around the same weight class because I know my senior year I was 125. And junior year and sophomore and freshman I was 103. Yeah, I knew. So I was just I a little like, guy. You know? I always knew of Stu because I just remember his name. I knew that he did sprint cars, um, but like so when he was saying he was getting into a full size sprint car in the early two thousands, that's when I was just first starting racing. So I was like eight or nine back then. So that's when I was just first racing a junior sprint. Um, so we we're a little bit separated in age there. Um, but yeah, the when I. Honestly, I think when I really got to know you face to face is when you started bringing parts down for powder cutting. Like I always knew like who you were, but I don't know that mm-hmm. I'd, I'd ever talked to you very much before that. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. That's pretty much how I think that's how it went too. You know, I tried to. I think uh, Papstein, Rob Papstein, their Lincoln machine had, had said something. I think I needed something powder coated quick, and he said, "Well, you ought to try Kaiser." And then you guys did. I think it was a set of wings or something like that, or maybe a set of panels. And then it was like, "All right, when we got that stuff and we beat the hell out of it for a season, and at the end of the year, it, you know, it barely looked like it had any, you know, wear and tear on it." I went to Corey and I said, "Hey, you know, we're building these really expensive machines and and everything else." I said, "Jason and his team do a great job. It's it's a family-owned business. It's all like a big corporation. We really need to." try and kind of transition ourselves over to that side because we were I think most of our bigger builds at the time were being painted and with an with an oil-based paint or something like that so I guess it was a it was kind of a stronger paint and I guess there's applications where that works and where it you know it doesn't you're the you're the expert on that I was just trying to drag more money more money in business through the door at the time you know so I was telling him this is what I think you need to do and, and you need to go here <laughs> Yeah, and it's worked out pretty good. We do a lot of work with uh, Lincoln Machine now. So when you switched from and moved from uh, go karts to sprint cars, like that is that's a huge jump in speed wise. 
So how did you handle that? Did it take a while to get the hang of it, or did you just jump right in and you were running up front right away? Well, yeah, we we for sure weren't weren't uh, running up front, especially at Eagle. I I struggled at that place. You know, that was my first that was my first racetrack that we were going to run. You know, weekly because it was Dad was still working for Lowry at the time, and I was still kind of trying to help Gable houses out with ideas and, and pointers throughout the night. So we were all kind of a a three-car team just you know three different locations and and of where the cars were you know during the week and you know I, I think at that time at Eagle there was probably 50 or 60 cars every week I think 40 was a low end um, of the toughest guys in the Midwest so, I mean I got my teeth kicked in every single night and back was, then that was a 360 so like now correct that was 360 right yeah, yeah, that was all 360 stuff, and and none of the none of the 305 stuff. I don't even think it existed in the country. So, I mean, you either had a 360 or a 410. So now, um, for younger kids that kind of go the whole open wheel route the whole way when they go from um, go kart, do they they probably typically go into a 305 now, right? Because that's more of a crate motor or something that's not quite as fast. Yeah, that's typically how it goes. Yeah, they. They either go there or they, you know, that's what I would like to see them do. Um, or I tell their parents that, or they jump into a micro sprint. Okay. And and re- they run that for a couple of years and whatnot. And, and I didn't get to do that because we didn't have the time for it. We were already running, you know, the sprint car teams with, with Jeff, with Mike, and stuff like that. So we didn't really have time to, to be away from the track and, and cut those guys shorthanded with dad going with me to go run a micro somewhere. And, and nowadays, what those guys are spending to run those micros at the top competitive, you know, outlaw class or a class level, you could spend the same amount of money and have a sprint car. And in two years go from the three Oh five and, and go up to the three sixty, And then if you want to go up from there, you know, you go to the four ten in, in a five-year plan and you're going to save your parents a ton of money. And, and the other deal too, is you as an older guy, you know, I've kind of hopped back into him a little bit here and there when I get asked to drive a micro and whatnot. I've gotten more more wrecked or gotten taken out by more 12-year-olds than ever in my life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just crazy. I did a I did a race a couple of years ago down at English Creek over by Knoxville, uh, Iowa. And it started the feature. I think I started third row outside. And we didn't even get to the green flag, and it was an, it was a good paying show. There was a lot of cars there. That's why I went down there, and I actually drove for Butch Bade. But um, we hadn't even got to the green flag yet, and I'm getting drove over. And it took me out of the race. I didn't even get to run the race. It busted the, the radius rod and the chain and the chain guard and the fuel line and everything off the left side of the car. Like, man, I was like, Butch, how old was that kid? He was, oh, he was like 12. You know, <laughs> and we just kind of laughed about it, you know, because – big paying show parents are putting pressure on them hey you got to go out and then win this deal and and you know jace you know as well as i do none of these races are really won in the first lap um especially you know driving through driving through somebody when you're starting starting third or fourth row but i just think it'd be you know better for for kids to to go from go-karts or cage carts just go straight to a sprint car because around here we don't have a whole lot of micro shows uh, you know, we got Cam Raceway, but but other than that, there's not a whole lot of close micro tracks since since uh, Waverly closed down, you know, years ago. Um, and it just 
you know, you're spending the same amount of money. If you want to take your kid and be competitive in a micro, you're going to spend the same amount of money to take your kid and get him some seat time and, and possibly be competitive in that 305. Um, and, and the speed thing, I didn't, I don't know. I guess I didn't really ever think about it. I was more mad that I kept getting beat all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but cause when we would go out of town, like on a Friday, you know, or whatnot, we'd go over to Rising City and run there, or we'd go run uh, Denison back when it was a huge five-eighths mile, half mile, and we'd win heat races, or we, and we'd run up front like fifth or sixth, you know, and I was like, oh, this is not bad at all. Maybe I am kind of getting this, you know, and then we'd go back to Eagle, and I'd spin out in the heat race or spin out in hot laps, and then I'd just, you know, 12th or 10th or 5th in the B main, just the... I don't know if it was just like I was better at those tracks because I didn't have the home, the home crowd kind of looking on me all the time. I guess I could just, you know, go my own speed and, and just do me at these other racetracks because nobody really knew who I was and, and didn't really know any of my background and whatnot. And yeah, it just, just uh, that's what I would do. For our listeners to kind of help them understand if they haven't been around racing much and also Chloe a little bit too. So like a, a go-kart is where a lot of people start their racing and that's going to be like the lowest power. And then usually if it's the open wheel route, um, kids will go into like a micro sprint, which is like basically a sprint car looks like one, but it's Mm -hmm. micro. It's tiny. That's what they call it. Micros. Um, and a little bit bigger engine than a go-kart or quite a bit bigger in some cases, but still a lot smaller than a full-size sprint. And then when we're talking a 305, 360, or 410, we're talking like the engine size. Um, so a 305 is the smallest of like the three main engines in a full-size sprint car, and that's more like a crate motor, a lot of rules around it to try to keep that power um, within reason and expense within reason. And so Stu's saying that that's where he'd like to see people start in a full size because it's, you get, can you get used to the power and then a 360 and a 410 are kind of the two full size sprint car classes that are, I don't know, are they the most popular Stu? I mean, 410 would be like your world of outlaws, but is a, is 360 still pretty popular or is the, that crate class taken off the 305 because of cost savings? Yeah, I, I think around this area, um, you see mostly the the three hundred fives have kind of taken taken the handle on that. You know, it's, there's not a whole lot of three hundred sixty guys around here anymore. Hell, I think there's only five to eight of us that still have both. You know, both engines. Um, and and the places to race, there's not a whole lot of three hundred sixty racing around here. So you has know, the uh... closest weekly show would be Knoxville, and then you know to be competitive there, you gotta. You got to run there a lot and you got to spend some coin and make sure you got a bunch of horsepower under that hood. Yeah. I don't, I don't race dirt late miles anymore, but I still keep tabs Not on yet. it. Not yet. Not <laughs> yet. We're, we're working on that. Remember? Yeah. Or we're, or we're going to work on the 305 route. Yeah, okay. But I still keep tabs <laughs> on it and it seems like every year, um, it gets more and more expensive, like all forms of racing, but the technology seems to step up significantly in the last five years, every year. Um, how does that work in sprint car racing? Is it, I, I, for full size sprint cars, I haven't been around them enough. Um, they seem, I don't want to say simpler, but there's not as many parts and pieces on a sprint car as there is like a dirt late model. So I was just curious oh, yeah. of the areas of where like, cause like 
as engineering has kind of seeped into dirt track racing, kind of trickled down from NASCAR and IndyCar. Um, what are some of the things that you guys do now um, that like were unheard of before? Yeah, like you said, I, they are way easier. You only need one wrench, Jace. One wrench can pretty much tune the whole car. And with you guys, you had like Swiss cheese holes <laughs> to move radius. I don't even know what they bars, J bars, yeah. radius rod, lower radius rod. No, this this is way simpler. And you know, and, and about oh, they they kind of transitioned probably twenty years ago into using a bunch of aero aerospace, you know, technology and titanium and and making everything lighter. And then we kind of just had a a run of the mill, you know, everybody had titanium and, and we all were kind of all on the same shocks and bars, you know, pro was a, the pro was a popular one. And, and then the last five, five or six years, I think it's really, it's really transitioned to where that technology that you were talking about is, has came down and trickled into the sprint car, you know, side of motorsports to where now it's shocks, torsion bars, um, you know, everybody pretty much kind of has the same ultralight, really nice, you know, amazing sprint car. But now it's it's the shocks. The shock technology has just went crazy in the last five years, and and the cost is 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 obviously there. You know, when you when you always make something that's faster than than Carl down the street, you know, you're going to want to charge more because everybody can go faster so why not and and it's it's really gotten if, if you can really tell the difference when you're sitting in the car between you know the, an older set of shocks or just a standard out of the box set of shocks to like the shocks that we run on our car now through uh, momentum racing suspensions brad bennick out of indiana and it was an integra company and i think I would assume when you were running late models that had kind of Integra kind of come into, come into that sport as well. And, and now it's come down into the sprint cars and there's a lot of big teams that are on that type of shock and really changed how these things work and, and what you can do with them to when, when the track goes slick to what you couldn't do with them, you know, 15 years ago. From a aerodynamic standpoint, I know dirt late models are really aerosensitive now. They, they have a, really nice front nose piece on them with the center like a splitter just like nascar and the front end's all sealed to the ground and um you get into like aero push situations constantly when you're behind somebody and in traffic uh sprint cars obviously have a big wing on top and a nose wing out in front has any i would assume there's been some developments in that with wing shapes and where you position the wing and stuff like that yeah for sure it's right along that same same road you guys went down or are still going down. We're all going down. These cars didn't used to be aero sensitive back in the day. And maybe it's just, we, we weren't going as fast or we didn't have, you know, the, the new designed wings like we have today. It's really sensitive, you know, like especially at, at the bigger racetracks when you got more ground speed, you can't follow a guy into the corner. You either have to be off to the left, be off to the right, or you got to be sliding him on entry. Um, even in the 305 out of Eagle, I've noticed, I noticed it a few times this year. You get tight at the center, and and it just rolls up on the cushion because you got tight. And the only reason you got tight is because you were right behind a guy. And and they've kind of, you know, uh, Casey Kane's team has done a lot trying to figure out aero packages with with hood designs and hood shapes and 
and and wings. You know, they've they've tried to figure that out. I like to run kind of in a little box, as, as everybody gives me crap about. I got a left side full panel on the 360 car. It just kind of keeps you in a little box. Maybe tries to make the car a little bit more aerodynamic um, and kind of calm down that dirty air effect that you have. But the bigger racetracks, there's not a whole lot, you know, we can we can do about it. You know, rule-wise, these are the wings that we have to, you know, these are the parameters we have to stay in between. Um, and there's, there's you know, Vortex has always done a real good job of changing angles of the sideboards. Well, it's still in the rule, but it gains you a lot more downforce, um, especially on the right side, you know, getting off the corner on the right rear corner. They changed that board. It really affected the dirty air, I noticed. You know, more talk about it when, when the wings got, you know, when the wing technology got better. You started hearing more and more about the dirty air issues that we're all having. That's really interesting. When you say dirty air, what do you mean? Well, it's, I, you know, you, we can't see it, but when you follow a guy, and I, I'm assuming that the air coming off of his wing and his car behind him has to be swirling somehow. Or okay. there's just no, or there's just no air. And and what happens is is, is if you follow him right into the corner and, and you lose, you you're gonna probably more than likely lose downforce. Um, and then with it swirling, you're gonna get the thing. It's gonna just the car's just gonna get tight. And, and what I mean by tight is, you know, you're turning left and it ain't turning left. It's still wanting to go to the right. Um, and you just, you just you get really tight if you're right behind somebody going into the corner. And, and you can even kind of feel it at the bigger tracks when you're going down the straightaway behind them. You can feel it with your helmet. It just starts buffering your helmet around. Like when you're when you're driving down the interstate in the next few weeks or something when you're headed somewhere, get up close to a semi mm-hmm. on, the, on the back side of it and just feel what it does to your car. It kind of wiggles that thing around a little bit. And then when you duck out, you get a little bit of a push. Because now you're cutting through clean air, and it's it's just it's it's kind of hard to explain, but it's that's probably the best analogy I can make on it. Yeah, you that's know, a perfect follow example. Follow a semi for a couple of miles and then duck out and see what then see what your car felt like. Just you know, besides rolling behind that semi, and we do it in the toter to save fuel mileage, but <laughs> you can feel that toter walk around pretty good behind a semi going 75 mile an hour down 80 headed to Omaha. Wow. So what is that fluid dynamics? Like what branch of physics would tell you what you need to know about this? Uh, Well, a little bit of fluid dynamics, but mostly aerodynamics, which is part of fluids. Yeah. I had no idea just how much strategy went into this. I think to try and figure that out more, you know, if if I was at the the upper tier, you know, the highest level, like Casey Kane's team is on the World of Outlaw Tour running a hundred and some nights a year, I would probably try and spend a little bit of time in the, in the, uh, well, it's wind done, tunnel. Uh, yeah, in the wind tunnel, messing around with hoods, um, messing around. You know, there there's a lot that we really can't do. You know, they're not going to let us put scoops underneath our front bumpers and stuff like that. Um, it still has to remain an open wheel car. There's there's a lot that we can't do. But if you can find that little edge between changing your hood shape and changing your you know your your front uh, dish shape a little bit to either gain downforce or try and try and you know dirty up that air behind you then by all yeah by all means we'd be doing it 
Because if you can kind of mess that guy up behind you, you know, you're going to gain tenths of a second on him every other lap. And and in the world of outlaws, that's that's a big deal. I mean, even in our deal, even 305s and 360s, tenths are big. Especially, well, I guess even probably more so in the in the 360. We don't qualify with the 305 very much at all. we done it once this year, and I up at Houston, and I loved it. I love qualifying. I'm, I'm normally pretty good at it because I get that mindset, like just put your elbows on the seat, don't even turn. And, of course, don't lift. You know, don't get out of the gas. Just let it roll. Um, and, and then that that separates, I think there was maybe well, half of a second between, you know, quick time and 30 seconds on on the timesheet. So, tents are huge. Not so, way. when you say open wheel, what do you mean? Is it exactly what it sounds like? Yeah. Yeah, both. All four wheels are out in the air. I mean, they're they're on the car, of course, but they're... They're wide. They're wide out. Yeah, you you got to show her some pictures, Chase. It's it's that's why a lot of us don't touch. You know, we don't touch each other's wheels. You know, all out on the racetrack, or or you don't want to, because then you get hated by a lot of people. And, sure. And the whole you know slide or die rule that that doesn't really you know that doesn't come into effect with the open wheel open wheel guys. <clears throat> How much time do you spend strategizing before the race? Like, do you, I mean, do you watch a video of your competitors? Do you kind of, you know, think about who else is out there with you? Um, how much of that goes on versus just like getting in your car and driving with your gut? Yeah, I I didn't used to do it at all, really. I just kind of drove off of what I felt. And if we were fast, we were fast. But with the wife, uh, as big of a part of it as she is and, and, whatnot it's i've kind of looked at that more in the last probably five years okay he, he's a couple tenths more or i'll maybe look back it's uh, and and it's great with social media it's really easy for us now to to type in a racetrack on youtube or type in a racetrack on dirt vision or flow you know some of the streaming services that we have nowadays and i can go back and i can watch an entire night at that track and I can see, okay, here's what it started like in hot laps. Here's what it ended up like in the feature. And and they always, always the other bonus to, to watching those is, you know, the specter, the the announcers have always kind of just given away that, hey, well, it, it didn't really rain here much this week. That's why the track's kind of like this or rained a lot on Wednesday. And that's why the track's like this. So I kind of have started watching that stuff that, that I can if I know we're going to a track that that were you know that somebody was able to stream on the year before or or there was a you know a live a live race at that event at that track it's it's kind of kicked in the high gear of okay this is what this thing usually does um you know we can go back and and look at uh look at setups and look at shocks look where we had our shocks set for that type of racetrack and you don't want to be fast the first five. We've always we've always preached that to, to the team, and we don't want to be fast the first five. We want to be fast the last five when it counts, because it don't matter if you lead the first five laps. What matters is the last five, especially the last one. So ten laps, I gather. Well, so uh, hot laps is usually six to ten laps, depending on where you're at track-wise. Heat races are normally eight to ten laps. And then the A feature, um, 25 to 35, unless you're at, you know, like a huge event like Nationals, I think, this year was 
was 35 there at Eagle. Uh, the Missouri Nationals that we won at the end of the season, that race was actually scheduled for 20. And wow. the track was really good. And they come around and they said, well, let's run 35. Wow. And I thought, well, all right. And then I tell you what, when you get used to running 25 lap A features all year or 20 lap A features, then they tell you you got to run a 35 lap A feature on a, on a little bull ring. It was, it was locked down. You're up on the wheel. You're driving the pits out of that thing every single lap. I was kind of wore out in victory lane. I told the guy, that. I was like, man, I'm kind of wore out. Maybe I am getting old at this. I mean, it sounds exhausting. So what, how big, I guess, is the average lap? Is that a dumb question to ask? Like, how much distance are you driving in a night if it were linear? Oh, I don't know. Jace, you got to help me out on that. But, well, it just I mean, depends on the side. Like, uh, yeah. Eagles, um, how big is that? Is that, like, a small I, three I eight? Think, yeah. They, they call Eagle the world's fastest third mile. Third. Okay. I would call it kind of, you know, small three eight. Knoxville, I-80. Um, those are all half miles. Um, Denison used to be a half mile. They cut it down to a three eighths. And, and so, you know, you're going three eighths of a mile. So I guess in two laps at Knoxville on a half mile, you know, obviously you're going a mile. Um, and, and we've also started to keep track of our engine time that way too. You know, okay. we used to count races. Well, now instead of counting races, we count laps. You know, how many overall laps do we have on this thing? And then it's, you know, we'd, we'd like to, as soon as the thing has its max lapse that we think we can safely survive without a failure, um, it goes back and it gets, you know, freshened up. And, and luckily with, with Myers Racing Engines out of Nest City, Kansas, we have had, I think, one issue in five years and it was just a, it was a part failure. We broke a rocker stud and, you know, Knock on wood, those guys, you know, for me, and then just those guys' knowledge and, and what Craig and his team put out for for longevity, durability, and power. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a salesman for them. I've been selling a lot of motors in the last three years for Craig. And, and you know, just, just for the mere fact that they don't fail. Yeah. Right. Because what kind of speeds are you reaching? Uh, that also depends on the track size, track or car type, but let's say like Eagle, I think is 80 to 90 miles an hour. Um, you know, we run Belleville, Kansas, which is a huge historic half mile. It's, it's, it's probably actually bigger than a half mile around the outside of that place. Hundred, They clocked me at 137 there. Um, you 137. Know, and, and and that's in a 305, you know, just try, I'm trying to think through my head back when we used to run there um, in the midget or in the 360 or in the 410 because I've pretty much ran every open wheel car I could at that at that place. It's an amazing, amazing racetrack. Kind of history. Grew up watching the midget nationals there my whole life. And, uh, it is, it's a fast place. Like it's, I say, you know, everybody says Eldora is the fastest big half mile in the in the country world's fastest or whatever they want to call it i still say that belleville is the fastest is it also your favorite what's your favorite in the country that you've been to uh, i've got a few you know obviously I'd, you know, eagle would have to be on my list we've, we've been really successful there we've won track championship there back when it was a 360 uh, series running there weekly we've won a lot of races there uh, Belleville has to be on that list too, just because of the history. And, and I like to go fast and that place you flat fly around that. And I've even seen the late model guys 
they put on a heck of a show down there too. And there's going to be a huge late model show down there this year. A uh, big paint show. But yeah, I'd have to say those, those are probably two of my, you know, biggest, uh, biggest on the list, I guess, is being my favorites. There's, there's a few others, you know, US 36 down in Cameron, Missouri was, was one of my hated, one of my, you know, hated racetracks ever. I got actually, I died there and I hated that place and did I you did say? never go back. Do you say you died, I died there? at that place? Yeah, I died. What, what do you place. mean by that? Well, sorry, we were running USAC non-wing. I just, we had just won the championship at Eagle and we had done a little bit of flirting around with the non-wing stuff. And we have family that lives out in Indiana. And of course, you know, Indiana is a hotbed for USAC non-wing. If you're going to be, if you're going to move up the ladder in, in open wheel motorsports, you got to go to non-wing and you got to go to Indy. Cause that's where Tony Stewart made it. That's where Jeff Gordon made it. Ryan Newman, uh, Kyle Larson, you know, even though he's a Cali kid, he went back to Indiana and set the world on fire. You know, he, I don't think there's a place in the country he hasn't won at, but in an open wheel car or now even in a NASCAR. But so we kind of started to do a little more of that. We were leading ASCS points the next year in 2012 doing the, the wing stuff. And then as the year kind of progressed, we put together a non-wing car and a non-wing, you know, 410. And we had kind of, when they swung through here for their, I think it's four or five nights uh, in a row where you could run. Eagle was on there. Back when we had USAC here at Eagle, we had I-80. Uh, Cameron was on there. Grain Valley, Missouri. Cameron, Missouri. You know, you could, you could, you could kind of hit a swing. And then I think at the end of it, they went down to Dodge City, Kansas for two nights. And we had just, you know, oh, let's go do this deal. We did it the year before at Eagle, and we were we were decent, and I really liked it. I, those are probably one of the hardest cars I've ever drove. You know, I, I had a midget; they were they were kind of tough too. But that non-wing sprint car is something else, especially a 410. You got you 900 horsepower. You got a car that weighs 1,200 pounds. You got no roof over your head, trying to lock that thing into the dirt. And I got upside to come off of. Uh, come off a of turn three and something on the right front of the, the front axle, either the torsion arm or just the kingpin boss failed. And the next thing I remember was looking over the hood at the dirt. And I took a ride. I went almost all the way out of the ballpark, collapsed the cage down around my head, you know, down around my feet. They actually told me a couple months after that I had left helmet indentations in the track every time my car hit on top of the cage did a lot of damage to my body uh broke broke my neck in three spots c1 c3 c5 compression fractured t2 all the way through t6 three brain bleeds three skull fractures bruised two lumps bruised both my lungs obviously i have two i guess bruised both my lungs uh, you know, they had the old racer red eye where I blew all the blood vessels in my eyes, which actually looks really scary, but I, you can't even tell. Like if you're walking down the road or something, you, your eyes are fine. They're just as red as apples, you know? Oh, my gosh. Uh, what else was there? I think I did. Uh, I broke the collarbone. So I I got light. They, they took me in an ambulance to St. Joe, Missouri, and then one of the doctors come in and the next thing, I guess my parents, you know, they were sitting out in the waiting room. The next thing you know, they know they're 
calling for life flight and in walked these two helicopter pilots, you know, in their flight suits. And I went from St. Joe to, to KU Med and I was at KU Med for two and a half weeks, I think. One of them weeks I spent in a drug induced coma. And they said they lost me in the helicopter a little bit out of St. Joe. So I never really liked Cameron after that night. You know, it's just, and I cannot stand walking oh my taco. Gosh. <laughs> I had a walking taco that night when we got to the racetrack, and I can't even look at those anymore. Wow. So, yeah, wait, what so year I've, was I've all had of this? a little bit. That was 2012. Um, and, and I guess at the time there was, there was no surgeons in America that would operate on me, let alone they hadn't seen anybody yet that had those types of injuries and could walk, talk, and function. You know, could use their legs, let alone carry on a conversation like I, I was out of it. I mean, I had a severe concussion, obviously, too, but with the swelling on the brain and everything going on, they didn't ever see anything like that. So they tried to put me in a halo. They couldn't put me in a halo because I had the skull fractures. So I got what they called a, a turtle shell, which I don't know if they called it that, but that's for sure what we did, to where that went around the front of my body and the back of my body from my waistline all the way to my neck. And then I also had a, there was a, a neck brace connected to that. And then after like six months, I got out of that and I was able to take a shower, like an actual shower, which was amazing. I don't think it was six months. I think total it was six. So probably three months in the turtle shell, three months with this uh, metal looking brace, kind of like a Hans device um, that had a little chin support on the front of it to hold my head back against the back brace. And I did that and then we kind of waited around. We had a brand new wing car sitting in the garage. And at the time I was driving for, for a very special man to me. And I guess a very special man to a lot of people, Eldon, Eldon Roden and his wife, Paula, put me in their car. And that's who I started driving for in, in 2009. And that's who we won the championship with. So I go through all that. And Eldon says, well, you know, what do you want to do, kid? I said, well, Eldon, we built a brand new car. He said, I guess I got to wait to see what the doctor's you know, stay. And of course, every neurologist, every spine doctor, you know, you should never race again. Well, that was like taking the life right out of me. You know, at the time I, I wasn't married. I didn't have a family of my own or anything. And I had the, the chip on my shoulder and the attitude that I, I, I still to this day kind of say, I'm safer in that race car than I am driving down the highway. Because the only thing that saved my life was the Hans device being underneath my helmet the helmet you know and me hitting the dirt had broke everything in my neck and then when the bottom of the helmet hit the Hans device and that's what fractured my vertebrae in my back they said had that little you know half inch piece of carbon fiber not been underneath your helmet they would have shoved your spinal cord through the bottom of your brain you'd be dead wow said, well, all right where do we go from here and, you know, of course, well, we can't advise you what to do in your life, but we're going to tell you, you should not get back in a race ball. So then that guy, you know, pissed me off because he just took my dream away. Cause we had just started getting really good at this deal. And so I switched and I come to a neurologist down here, uh, Dr. Tome, 
in Lincoln. And he said, well, you know, I kind of, I'm kind of standing on the same thing. I'm not going to write down anywhere that I can, that you can race, but I'm going to tell you, you're just as, as you're going to be just as stable down the road as what you were before. And that was with no hardware, you know, in my body. He goes, but is it a good idea? Probably not. But he goes, I'm not going to sit here. And he goes, I deal with, with sports injuries with football players and, I'm not going to tell you you can't live your dream. So you right. do what you want, and I'll sit back here and, and hope to God that nothing happens. And th- thankfully, I've, I've taken a couple of rides since, some big ones, but concussion here and there, nothing too extreme, nothing broken for sure. I didn't get a, get a ride in a helicopter or die in a helicopter that I don't even remember. I mean, wow. I, that's the only time I ever got to ride in a helicopter, and I don't even remember. How much of it do you remember, or is it just kind of filling in stories of what people are telling you? Like, obviously, immediately after, you probably don't remember much of that, but at what point did your consciousness click back in? Well, I kind of, like I said, I, I remember looking over the hood. I don't remember anything after that. I don't, I remember the hospital probably towards the towards the end of my stay. Cause I decided I was going to take the feeding tubes out and I was not going to be very nice to the nurse. I was just going to take that stuff out, get up, go to the bathroom and go sit back down. So I remember that. <laughs> I remember the ride home. My, my uncle Mark and aunt Trudy brought down their big old motor home to bring me home. Cause I couldn't, there was no way I was making that trip from Kansas city back home in a car. So they brought their motor home down and picked me up and brought me home. And then, you know, I'd, they put you on a bunch of painkillers, obviously to try and get through it with all the pain that I was having. And all these people were stopping by and all these people were donating to help me out, you know, financially wise, because I wasn't able to work. I had a, a brand new Duramax at the time that I still had a payment on, um, you know, insurance, health, you know, medical bills and everything else. And, and just the racing community alone. And Jay, Jace knows this, the racing community is standalone. The, one of the best communities in the, in the world, as far as I'm concerned. When you get hurt, wow. those people jump up big, you know, and, and I remembered that a little, you know, I started remembering a lot of stuff then. And I, you know, they had me on the painkillers and I just woke up one morning and said, you know, I'm not remembering who's stopping by and who's talking to me and not really remembering any of that. So how about I just deal with the pain and just cut out the painkillers so I can remember kind of what's going on. Do you have and any lasting all, issues clicked. from all that? Yeah, I can tell you when the weather's going to change two days before it does. Really? Because my, my neck and my back start hurting. I get, I've kind of started now, you know, as I get older. Uh, obviously, that happened in uh, 2012. So now as I get older, you know, the, the pain in my neck can start to give me, you know, horrible migraines and stuff like that. And I go to the chiropractor. I'm thankful that my 305 car owner, uh, his nephew owns Love Chiropractic there in Lincoln, and they do. He's outstanding. If any, if any of your crew, of, of your guys' employees over there need a chiropractor, they got to go to Love Chiropractic on 48th and, what is that, Piedmont or Prescott? It's, he's amazing. And I, I used to go to him three times a week um, here in the last few years. Now I, I try and get over there once or twice, you know, as, as much as I can. But we all know how life is. We're always super busy, and, and especially with the racing and the, the two kids. Um, 
McKinley just started in gymnastics and, and Cruz is just hell on wheels every day. So it's tough to be able to go to the chiropractor, but I can tell you it, it does, it does help because when you get older, those injuries start to hurt. So did you experience a lot of fear getting back behind the wheel again after that? I mean, how did you muster up the courage to try again? Well, I knew that it, I knew that we had a, a good crew of guys, um, Brandon Haichu and, and Brandon Bodfield, my dad and, and Eldon and Nate Johansson and, and Garrett Vidlak that had always always been with me from day one. Um, you know, they had they they were going to have me in a top notch equipment, you know, the best that you could have, and I knew that it was going to be right. So it was more on me, you know, mentally saying, okay. You can still do this. Let's just let's see how the first couple laps goes, and that's really what they noticed too. When the the first race of the year, the next year was out at I eighty. We always have a two day season opener out there with the three sixty, and that was the first race back. And I had I had barely gotten clearance Thursday morning to be able to get something in writing to where I could go back to racing, and I had barely got that done. Basically, they had just cleared me from their care was all it really said. It didn't say I could go, you know, jump out of a plane or go hop on a, you know, hop on a rocket ship uh, on a racetrack. But so the first couple laps of, of hot laps out there was pretty, pretty nerve wracking. I mean, I was still probably on the gas, but I wasn't the timing, you know, of my hands and my feet and what I needed to do get to get the car into the corner and, you know, keep up pace with everybody else was pretty tough. And then we went out in the heat race and I, just something kind of clicked. We were running towards the back, and there was like five laps left. And I said, "All right, I guess we had a yellow." And I just thought to myself, "Either you're going to do this or just quit," because there's, you know, tons of time between everybody taking away from their families and to to keep me going in something that I want to do and that they love to do. What are you going to do here? And there's a ton of ton of money behind you with with Eldon and his wife. You know spending the amount of money to, to keep me competitive and have the best stuff. And on top of that, all the partners that we had that we still, most of them we still have to, to this day. All right, what are you going to do? Are you going to set up in the seat and drive this? If not, you're going to have to quit. And you're going to have to go to be a crew chief or, or go to the lake on the weekend. And I don't like both. So I just said, all right, to the hell of it. So we ended up, we run up the second. I think we ended up in the top five that night. And it was like, all right, I still got it. Probably got some things I can polish you know, work on, but I can still do this. And I, I just say to myself, when you stop winning and you stop running up front, that's when you can quit. And wow. at, at that time, it might actually come a little sooner because I'm still winning and we're still running really well wherever we go. It seems like at the moment and, and I'm lucky to have what I have and the people behind me that I have, but my little guys too now, and the life keeps telling me, all right, well, when he gets, to the go-kart age, we might have to, I say, yeah, I know what you're going to say. I'm either going to have to retire or go to just racing, you know, large events uh, during the summer so we can we can go with him. And, and I think I, I'm really looking forward to doing that. He's, he's, he's for sure wants to be involved in anything racing. Uh, Kenley's always right out there helping us too, you know, during the week. It takes a lot of, of hours and whatnot to get these things ready. To make sure that you got a car that when you leave that shop, everything has been checked off. Everything's perfect, and you're going to be able to run up front without any issues at the track. And he he loves doing the wing dances, and 
he even does them on his little roadster. He'll come out of his room. Like I put it on Facebook a couple nights ago. We were watching TV and he come out with his little roadster, uh, pedal car with one of my old helmets on and a trophy. And then he takes his helmet off, grabs his trophy and stands up on top of his roadster seat, starts cheering. I said, oh yeah, we're, we're screwed. <laughs> we're screwed. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to be in this for the long haul for sure, baby. This is what we're going to do because, because he loves it. And it's just always been a big family deal. Um, you know, starting out with my, my mom, my dad and, and my wife and our kids and everybody's just kind of a big family and then on top of that you get the racing community we're all a huge family when something bad happens to one of us we we chip in and, and do what we can to try and help them out financially or help them out with whatever they need and just a just a real cool deal that's amazing so when your son gets into it uh do you see your role shifting like are you going to be on his team how does that work yeah for sure i think you know i'll try and I'll try and lead him the way that I was kind of led and and see where he goes. I know for sure I'll probably help him, you know, maintain and, and build his first cart and kind of show him the ropes and probably, you know, show him the ropes on, on what to do in the garage, but also show him the ropes on, and I don't, I don't know if I'm great at it. I think I'm okay at it. You know, I try and do the best as far as, you know, promoting the people that help you never burn a bridge because you never know when that's going to come back around and when you say, Hey, you know, I, I don't have a ride this weekend and you still got a car, you know, speaking from the, you know, car owners, car owners deal and a driver deal, you know, would you want to take your, your car out this weekend and let me drive it? You know, just, just kind of show them the ropes on all that. and Maybe he can make it, you know, a little bit further up the motorsports ladder than what I did. Maybe someday he can do it for a living, but that would be really, really cool to be able to see him, you know, do it at that kind of a level and, and have a good name and, and have a good following, and, you know, just teaching that. But, you know, hey, he might even want to play baseball when he's five. We don't know. But right now that kid is full on race car mode. <laughs> it's, it's definitely fun to watch. Um, but for sure, you know, as soon as he gets of age and if that's what he wants to do, then that's what we'll do until he don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to push him. Um, to do it if you don't want to, because you can't you can't really push it in this sport, you know. Like you, you kind of can in other sports, you know. Push them to want to do it or be better at it, but just be able to be successful and, and to be on that level, like the World of Outlaw guys. They either they either have that little extra that was just born into them, I guess. To be fast what do you think it takes? Competitive and. What's that? What do you think it takes to be at that level? Like, is it a competitive thing? Like, fearlessness? What what qualities do you think make for a good driver? Well, I think it's it's hard to to ever put into words just that little extra bit that you see a lot of these guys that run up front or win constantly have. And then you see people that, that have a little bit of talent that are able to to roll the car around the track, rolled in the trailer at the end of the night, finished fifth. They were happy with that. Um, but they just didn't have that extra. I, and, and Jace might even know too. I, I don't know. It's hard to explain. Like you either have it or you don't. And it don't matter how much money you throw at it in this sport. If you don't have it, you're not going to be fast. And you're not going to win shows. And I, I don't know what that, what that extra bit is. Yeah, I'd agree with that. 
it is and I don't even feel like for me myself personally that I'm uh have like all of it I might have some of it but I don't think I'm when I was racing I didn't feel like I was the absolute best driver on the track I felt yeah, like and- I, I felt like I knew more about setting up the car than most people so that elevated me to the success that we had but like uh, you take somebody like Kyle Larson who's a NASCAR driver but he runs all during the week and all other sorts of motorsports and pretty much always runs up front like that's just a special talent yeah like he has and I'm not saying I have it I just you know I might be like you to where I was I know more about the cars because I was a crew chief here and, and I, I lived in California for a year and I was a crew chief out there on a midget team. And then maybe it's just that experience of other types of racing and, and being successful at that to where that helped me be able to set our stuff up better here and, and be able to win races. You know, I may not have it either, but there is just that something little extra that it don't matter how much money that your sponsors or your mom and your dad can throw at it to where you have it and you're continuously up front. And Larson has got to be an alien, because that guy can win in anything he gets in. Definitely. I'm just so interested in in that X factor, whatever it is. And I know, so Jace, is it fair to say that what attracts you to racing is kind of the engineering side of it and having the best car um, and that Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I'm, you know, from just all of our um, Kaiser Blasting and Coatings content, you know, I like to plan, I like to organize, I like to get everything in order and make sure all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And that's, a, I got that from racing. And so uh, most of the time I was a lot younger than the competition. And I assume Stu was too. He didn't talk about that much, yeah. but when I first got into late models, I was a lot younger and way less experienced. But one way that I could keep up was just to work harder and spend more time in the shop and spend more time preparing. And that kind of got me interested in engineering. And that's why I went on and got an engineering degree. So I've always said that I like to work on the car and prepare it more than I like to race it. Like, obviously I still like to get in and, and race it, but, um, if I had to choose between working on it and setting it up versus race, actually driving it, I would pick, uh, working on it and setting it up because I think I just have a little bit more fun on that side of things actually. Yeah, what for sure. That, for you, Stu? That, that that is probably the same thing. You know, we only get we only get maybe thirty minutes in that seat a night, and it's it's amazing. It's a great feeling to win races. There's you know not really much other feeling in the world um, that you can experience that you can experience that feeling. But I mean, you're you're talking thirty to what probably forty hours a week. Also working a full-time job, you know, that you're spending in the shop. And, and I've always kind of been like Jace, one where everything's organized, clean, built right. No, there is no issues when you roll that thing out of the trailer. You know everything on that was 100% done correctly and that thing's ready to go. All you got to do is set the thing up at the track and do your, you know, follow the racetrack and, and do your job in the seat. But, you know, everything else was always, that was always kind of, you know, read into me too that uh, time attention and detail take the time take the attention make the details and make that thing perfect so when you go to the track you ain't got no failures you don't have no part issues or anything you know, we might have a, a part issue but you know you're not having any any issues with anything else on that race car and it's a lot of time a lot of money of, of ours and and all of our partners that back us and 
you know, it just, just takes the time to make sure that everything's correct and everything's, you know, where it needs to be. And that's, that's huge. You know, you see some of these guys come out, you know, they might have some money. They got nobody on the, on the car that can set it up or they got no, they don't, they don't have the time to do the work during the week and their results are going to show it. They're not going to run up front consistently, at least, and, you know, they, every squirrel finds them out once in a while, but consistently, consistently, the guys that run up front spend a lot of time during the week making sure their stuff is ready to go. Yeah. Being prepared is huge. And that's why, uh, we ended up stopping racing because we got to the point where I knew when we got to the racetrack that we had not prepared enough to be a winning race car. And we had raced enough that we wanted to run in the top five or top three every night. And we knew we were capable. And when I knew we were showing up and I was like, we do not have a winning race car prepared coming out of the trailer. That's when I got to the point where it's like, I think it's time for us to not do this. And that just boiled down to time. I did. I didn't have enough time to spend in the shop. I was spending a lot of time working, um, at the business And, uh, yeah, you're right. It, it's a definitely a, a second full-time job, even at the local level of racing when you're doing multiple nights a week. Um, if you want to be on top of your game, you absolutely have to spend that much time. Um, cause basically you just have to spend more time than everybody else, essentially, if you want to be the best. So. Yeah, for sure. I, I, the wife always would get on me and, you know, she'd, she'd spend the same amount of time in the shop with me and come, you know, Friday morning. We're getting ready to go to Denison, and then we know the next night uh, we're going to go to Eagle or we're going to go to Knoxville with our car with the 360, and then we might even try and hit up a Sunday show. And it's like, man, you know, we we do all this work and all these hours and and everything else, and it's like, yeah, but well, look at what we're on right now. We're on a we're on a rolling train, and, and we're doing really well, and we're winning. Uh, I mean, there was I think a month stretch there where we didn't lose a race. That, we showed up this at year? Eagle. We hadn't even, yeah, we hadn't even ran at Eagle much. At, I think we only ran like one race there before we showed up the the second time, and we had won. I think we'd won somewhere on Thursday. We won Denison Friday, and then we show up at Eagle, and I already knew. Okay, well, I got no point average. Got to start back at the heat race. All I know is I got to make that point intervert. I got to make top three. We get up to, I think, third or second in the heat. All right, so we, we got a good start spot feature. I think we started seventh or eighth, I think. And, you know, we won that. And then I was like, well, all right, well, you know, all that time in the shop, you know, all those hours, getting off work early to go up to Denison. Or there was a few times where I couldn't get off work early, so we'd roll up right after work. You know, that whole month of, of those wins, it was just, it was all thrown back to, you know, us, us guys and gals spending the time in the shop to make sure everything's right. And, and it showed we, I think we won six in a row at Denison. We won, I think two, we won the one week at Eagle and the next week we won at Eagle. And then we took a week off and then we come back and won again. And I was like, wow, all right. Well, you know, it just, everybody's like, what are you guys doing? Well, not really doing much. I just rolled out of the trailer and I put a tire on it, set my shock. And they just kind of laughed and like, I'm lying to them, you know? And I'm like, no, that's, that's really what we're doing. We're not doing a whole lot. Just keep it. Once you find the baseline, keep it there. Work from that. But everything's done in the shop. So where'd you end up with at the end of the year? Did you, did you run for any championships or were you traveling around and just racked up a ton of wins? 
Well, we, we were traveling around and, and we weren't really expecting to run, you know, for a championship anywhere. We were planning on running, I think it was 68 races and we were going to have them kind of, you know, trying to split half of them with the 360 car, half of them with the 305 car. And unfortunately we hurt our, our primary 360 motor at Knoxville, uh, like in June. So then it was like, well, all right, we'll just shove that car in the, in the corner of the shop and. I guess we're running 305 because, you know, at the time, I'm, you guys had the same problem. I had it at Lincoln Machine with what we do there. You couldn't get materials. You couldn't get parts. It was tough. So I pretty much knew that it had, if we didn't have anybody step up with another complete race-ready engine, that we weren't going to have the time to get parts in, to get Myers, to get that uh, 360 fixed. So we hit the ground with the 305, and we had already been successful in it earlier this year when we were doing both and so it was a kind of a no-brainer well let's just go run this and see what happens and we were leading points at, at Denison we were going to win a championship there and I've made the decision that I wasn't going to miss a Belleville Nationals again I missed one and we've always ran really well down there with the 305 so we skipped and we went to Belleville and we ran good down there again last year we had the thing won screwed up as a driver ended up second this year we ended up third at that deal but it handed that championship over um so we weren't able to win that deal but we we for sure you know we definitely won the most races over there and that so then we start looking at the wins and the, and the podium finishes and the top fives and we're like oh okay so let's click on the imca national point well shit we're sitting second in that we finished second in national points last year. It was like, well, maybe we could chase this and we could be able to be a national champion, which is, is pretty cool, pretty damn cool to, uh, you know, to say the least that you're a national champion. You're not just a Eagle Raceway champion or a Denison champion or, or a little series. You know, the year before we had won an SSN 305 championship. We had just went, up, went to all the races and we were fortunate enough to win a couple of them and we were up front in all the rest of them. So, we won that, but it, it would have been really cool to be able to do that. But IMCA does it where they take your best 20 out of your first 40, and that's how they do those points. And then at the end of the season, you get bonus points for track championships, series championships. And I think, like, I think that's about it. But so anyways, so we were, we missed out on the track championship deal because we didn't run a track every single weekend. Uh, missed out on the series deal because we didn't really have a series around here this year. The SSN kind of folded up because they got busy, you know, doing everything else that they do. So there wasn't really a series around here to be able to, to win a championship at. So at the end of the year, we got a lot of wins. We got a lot of podiums. How many wins total uh, did you get? We had 14 wins. And that's I a think, really good year. Congratulations. Yeah, like that's, that's a stellar season and thank you and I appreciate everything you guys do for me because it definitely definitely makes us look fancy and look good and and uh I think we had 26 or 27 top three finishes and then everything else but two races out of 38 shows was top 10 dang so I mean we were never we were never out of the out of the deal and I you know, thank God I, I've been driving for Roger Love and the, and the Love family for, I think this is, this was our third season together. Um, I've been, 
this this year was the most I'd ever tore up, and none of them were, you know, knock on wood, none of them were my fault. I just got caught up, and and we bent uh, a front axle and two sideboards and a, and a fuel tank. And that was it. That's all we we have really piled up, which is pretty pretty amazing. Also, because you know as well as I do, you got to be on kill mode when you're in that car, and even more so in that 305 day, you got to be good and you got to be, you got to be kind of on kill mode to be running up front because we're all kind of the same, you know, we're all kind of the same speed. We all kind of have the same motor package. So to do that and to to win as many shows as we have in three years, being together, we found something special. Hopefully we can keep the deal going and not, not uh, you know, continue the not tearing stuff up and running up front and contend for some more wins. Yeah, Maybe next year we can we can uh, go to the banquet down there at the Cornhusker be a national champion. That's a really great year. You get I know as this we've been talking on the podcast, you've been thanking some of your sponsors as you, as you've been going along. Is there anyone else that you'd like to thank? Oh yeah, yeah, I got a list. <laughs> you know for sure, uh, Myers Engines. Uh, momentum racing shocks and jr1 chassis i don't know what we kind of found with that combo but all three great uh great partners of ours and we've just kind of hit the ground running with with those three dudes and it's been really really good and you know they've been doing this for plenty of years so it was it's it's really easy to be able to to bounce stuff back and forth find what we need and, and be able to run up front with that and you know, of course, you guys, Cage of Blasting Coatings, for, for making us look pretty. And, and that thing looks good all year long. We'll keep trying to bring people through the door. Uh, Hosby Power, uh, Mr. Yards and more, they, they for sure bend over backwards to keep the yard clean because I don't have time to do it. <laughs> We're always on the road race in the last few years. And, and Dennis and his crew with uh, Mr. Yards and more have always made sure to keep that up and tight. And, make sure the snow in the winter times removed. So I'm kind of a, not really like the dad life yet. I don't have to mow with the, what is it? The, the polo and the jean shorts, and <laughs> my new balance shoes. I don't have to do that. I'm, I'm kind of blessed with that, with them guys being on board. Um, you know, they, uh, they make sure that that's all handled. So I don't have to, which is really nice. Uh, Katie trucking out of Kansas. Well, actually out of the lower part of Nebraska. Um, down by the Hebron area, they they were a they were a partner of mine when I was a little kid doing the sprint car stuff. Him and his dad or his parents were, and he kind of come up to us a couple of years ago down at Fairbury when we ran a, a special down there and said that he you know started his own trucking deal and he's got a lot of trucks out on the road and would like to be a partner. So he hopped on board. Um, you know, uh, Riley Riley Campfield with. Uh, Take off tire there on Highway 77. You guys ever need any tire work? Go to him. Just like you guys, family-owned deal. Kid trying to make it, and and he does great. He he's got great prices, great tires, great service. On you know he he'll even come to wherever where you know roadside stuff too. So so Riley's been good. Really helped us out with making sure that I don't have to worry about a tire blowing up when I'm going down the highway. And that is I I. You know, I'm like you. I was, I always like to keep my truck and trailer looking really nice and looking clean. Probably because I could, I know I can get more money out of it if I go to sell it to go to something bigger, but he always does a great job. You know, I, 
I don't ever have to worry about a tire blowing up and going down the side of the going down the side of the uh, the trailer or the toter or whatnot. Speedway Graphics Harris decals here in town. We've got Speedway Graphics Stan Caesar. He does my car uh, just because I've been with him since Eldon since the Eldon Roden days. Harris, you know, they actually did my first sprint car in their basement when they first got started, uh, along with a couple other sprint car guys. And I've always had them do decals throughout the year, but they do the five car and they make that thing look really good. Smith's Repair has been with me. I think we just added it up. 18 years is what Smith's Repair has been with me. He lives down in my grandma, my grandma and grandpa's town down in Port Nebraska and does a bunch of auto repair. Um, Another great guy, Kaiser uh, Kaiser Wheels. They've been with me, I don't know, eight eight nine years now. You know, Wade's Wade's always done done us real well and and has a great a great product that that a lot of the bigger teams have run and they've they've had another successful another another successful business. Lutton Law Office out in Ashland. She does all of our taxes for us. She's a tax lady, so. She's great. Uh, she, you know, I've, she always gets on me come tax time that I lost these seats or I didn't keep track of the mileage on the truck. So we're, <laughs> we're always trying to hammer down some stuff right before we get into, right before we get into tax season. So we don't have no issues with her on, you know, making her life a little bit easier. Simpson Racing Products, they keep me safe. Uh, they're, you know, have been a, a longtime partner of mine as well. I think I got them in 2000, 2004, 2005. Um, Desiree's always made sure I was in the, you know, the best safety equipment that you can be in. Foley brand, uh, he builds, uh, camera mounts for GoPros and, and some other kind of ons and in stuff too with, with designing new parts and stuff. Um, I'm trying to think of a couple of others. Showsby Motorsports out of Missouri, he always throws us a tire here and there when we're down in his area. You know, another good guy and, and, uh, you know, I think, I think looking back at it, you know, as I, I list all these people off, and then there's a lot of them that I might forget. Um, but it just takes an army to be able to do this anymore with the cost of what it is and and everything else, and, and to be able to run consistently up front. It just takes all these people behind us to be able to to do it, and that's. That's why all the and, and then I'd like to say like to think that I've you know done enough promotional for them to where they've stuck with me this long. You know, e- even some of our newer partners, they've been with us two or three years, and they you know always either call me or I call them, and they're ready to go for another season. You know, there's no real questions. They just say, okay, well, well, when do you need it, and 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 what do you need, or what can we do for you, and. So, you know, it's, well, it's can, worked out pretty well. I yeah. think I've, I've got a couple others that I, that I, you know, I probably forgot. I've got a cousin over in Hastings that does some home remodeling, uh, custom whitetails and, uh, SG racing, a good friend of mine down in Arizona always helps me out. You know, I've got a design guy, uh, laid left designs up in South Dakota that always designs up some sexy looking cars. And I, I haven't had anybody tell us we've got any ugly race cars. Normally they say, "Wow, that thing is sweet," you know, and and he does it. He does a phenomenal job. He designs a lot of other people's cars too, and it just helps. You know, you got a good powder coater behind you, and you got a good design guy, and you're always going to have good looking cars. And, and I know from a if I was in, you know, your shoes, um, 
I'd want my name on something that didn't look like a shitbox. <laughs> that's true. Well, can... <laughs> I don't really know how else to say, but that that's how I feel about it. You got a sexy looking card, and it's always maintained well, and you always got guys behind you that are that are keeping you keeping it up, you know, keeping it up, keeping it organized. You might have a couple other people that are going to stop down after the race and say, "Well, we'd like to bounce out of your car." You know, what, what's that take? And, and then there you go, snowballs into something, and and hopefully, you know, I can keep all the partners I have up until I quit, and and maybe even slide a few over onto Cruz's cart when he starts. Yeah, that'd be great. We really congratulations this year. We enjoyed working with you. Um, I think you do a great job uh, through social media trying to help promote your sponsors, and I don't. Not every racer does that, so I think there's a lot of value there. That's probably why a lot of uh, your partners have stuck with you for so long. Looking forward to working with you next year. Um, that was awesome. a really really good season for you with that, that many wins. For anybody, that's really hard to do. So um, good luck for next year, and um, hopefully have a good off-season preparing. Yeah, for sure. We'll we'll be calling you pretty quick saying, hey, can, can we slide a frame in down there? <laughs> but no, I, I appreciate you guys taking the time having me on. And uh, it's always a pleasure talking with you and, and getting to know you a little more. You know, you're kind of quiet from, from day to day. And I kind of I kind of peel you back a little bit when I'm down there joshing around with you when I'm picking up some stuff for Lincoln Machine. But I still say we're going to get you in a 305, at least at a practice, and see what you think. Okay, yeah, well, at work I'm in work mode, but whenever you whenever you start talking racing, that opens me up a little bit. Maybe if yeah, yeah, see, they can't shut us up. You right? get maybe if you get me in a sprint car someday, we'll get you in a late model. See yeah, how you like that. Oh, I I uh, I actually talked to this was supposed to happen. I don't know if it still will, but I had talked to Kyle Burt. You know, we're kind of I kind of like walked through the late model pit. You know, guys, and back when you were racing, I did too. I was like, all right, who's my size? Because I've always wanted to drive one. I don't know if I'd want to, you know. If I was good at it, okay, let's race it. But if I'm not good at it, I just I want to do it by myself first. Yeah. See, but you know who's my size that can fit in my seat and they can hop in my sprint car and I'll hop in their late model and you know I've I've always uh, thought those guys. It, I'm sure it takes a lot of uh, talent to drive one of those just like it does a sprint car and they look like a lot of fun. So maybe we'll work some out down the road someday. All right. Well, we appreciate <laughs> it. We'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Thank guys. You, Yep, yep. And then we got social media or question coming up. Um, one thing I was thinking about, I was listening to some Gary Vee today on my way home. And uh, we should, I know when we get a comment on a post, and I know you uh -huh. do a pretty good job at this, but like when it's a somewhat relevant comment, which I think we should always respond. Always reply. I agree. And I yeah. know, like, sometimes it's, like, a technical one, so you have to ask me first, and then sometimes I'll get back to you, but we should try to, I'll try to be better at that. And even if they're, like, saying, uh, like, oh, cool picture, I probably, sh I think we should comment back, mainly because Gary totally says agree. that we should, but that also might help just, like, keep propagating some organic reach on a, yep. on a post. Does it bother you when I screen cap stuff and send you questions? No, it doesn't, because that's, okay. like, the quickest and easiest way for me to answer sometimes yeah. if it's during the work day like sometimes i'm just not checking my texts so then, oh yeah and that's fine so then i might not see it till like 6 30 when i'm getting ready to leave work but mm -hmm. it's at least it's there and i will respond so yeah i agree we should be at least like liking and responding and yeah yeah 
So we had a question come to us via Instagram from our friends O'Malley Custom Coatings. Um, and it goes like this. They said, I can't get my phos- my excuse me, I can't get my phosphate mix right lately. It's driving me nuts. I thought it was six ounce to one gallon water for a 20 to one mix, but I can't get left, but I either get left with rusty metal or a whitish film. Okay, this is going to be a long-winded answer, and it would be better for Bill to answer this than me. But um, there are so many different variables that are going to go into your pretreatment. Um, the first thing is the water that you're using. Um, so everybody's water is different. And so it's really hard to just grab. Uh, I don't know where um, O'Malley is getting their phosphate from, um, but if it is not formulated for the water that you have or buffered for the water that you have um, then you're going to have difficulties in pre-treating sounds to me like at one point in time he was it was working well for him but now he's just saying that he can't get the mix right lately Um, I'm not sure what's changed there for him but uh, the 20 to 1 or 1 to 20 that's like a 5% concentration uh, of the phosphate in the water that seems maybe a little bit on the high side to me, just compared to what we normally run. Um, I think commonly people run like two to three percent, uh, so five percent seems a little bit high. The I would say if you're up around the five percent mark, you're probably that's why you're seeing the whitish film. So you're leaving unreacted phosphate behind on the metal, and when it dries, it's a white film. Um, the rusty metal. So there's a couple things that, that could be causing that. So if you have a really oily part, let's say hot rolled pickled and oiled steel, so it's not rusty when you start on it, it's super oily, and you're going in with your iron phosphate, and that's the only thing that you're going to use on it. So you're going to basically, hopefully there's a little bit of a surfactant package in that phosphate, um, so you get a cleaning. So it's going to clean off all those oils, Okay, so it's starting to clean it off. It's going to take a little while, depending on how good the surfactant package is. You could be getting all those oils cleaned, and then you might be quitting because you've already spent 10 minutes or 20 minutes on it. And if you quit too soon, you've just cleaned the oils off, but you haven't started to build a phosphate coating. So now, since all the oils are gone, but you haven't built any phosphate, then it could rust. So that doesn't have anything to really to do with your concentration. That has to do with your time. You know, so if you remember one of our first podcasts we had with Bill, Bill's favorite thing to say about pretreatment is time, temperature, and concentration. So we're just talking about concentration here. We also need to think about time and temperature. Um, but that could be one thing that's causing it to rust. Again, the whitish film is always going to be because there's just too much phosphate. So you have unreacted phosphate left over. How can you get rid of that? You just do a final rinse after you phosphate it, and that should get rid of the whitish film. Or you could just run less concentration, and then you'll get rid of the whitish film. Uh, another thing that could be causing the rusty metal, if 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 O'Malley thinks that he is pretreating it long enough to get rid of the oil and build a phosphate coating, if the pH is wrong with your uh, phosphate water mixture, then you could flash rust the metal right away. And it um, doesn't matter how long you spend on it. Once you flash rusted it, it's rusty. Uh, that has to do with more of the chemistry in the phosphate itself. You're really not going to be able to um, correct 
a pH issue by just running different concentration. Um, you may be able to knock your concentration back a little bit, and it might help, uh, but more than likely, you need some chemistry or some buffers in your iron phosphate to try to bring that pH to where it doesn't right when the... Because iron phosphate is acidic. If it's too acidic, um, when it mixes with your water, let's say, uh, and you're at your 5% concentration, the 20 to 1 that O'Malley mentioned, um, your pH could still be really, really acidic. And so then that causes flash rusting on the metal. So that's long-winded answer, but hopefully that answer gives him some ideas of which way he needs to go. Uh, I kind of need more information, quite honestly, to give him like exactly. So if he hears this, yeah. he or she hears this and they message us, um, I might be able to give it a little more information. But the easy one is the widest film. That's just too much phosphate. The rusty metal is kind of a lot. Could be a lot of different things. Got it. O'Malley Custom Coatings, if you're listening, uh, reach out to us on the socials and we'll talk about it more. But yeah, see, that's why I like pretreatment so much is because um, I like problem solving and there's just all kinds of different variables there. Uh, yeah. So just all kinds of different things. Next Could, time Bill is on, we'll have to ask him this again. Yeah, absolutely. And like, just because like someone, so Kayser's using an iron phosphate and our competitors in Lincoln are using an iron phosphate, let's say, and O'Malley's using iron phosphate, and maybe we're all using them at, at 5%. We could all be getting different results um, uh, if they're all different brands of chemical because, like, everybody right. does their chemistry a little bit differently. So it's just because you say you have iron phosphate, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. You know, I, I'm telling O'Malley that I think 5% concentration is too high, but if it's a... Um, an iron phosphate that's just pretty weak mixture. Not saying mm -hmm. that it's a bad product, but it's just um, doesn't have a lot of cleaning package in it. Doesn't have a lot of surfactants. That means it's not going to clean the greases and oils very well. So you got to run more concentration. You know, if you have something that has a lot of good cleaning capacity in it, then you can run less concentration because you have better chemistry in the chemical itself. And how much of an impact does the local water have on that too? Pretty big. So the local water is going to have impact on the pH that I was talking about. So depending on what is being carried in that water, like you could think of it as like how hard or soft the water is. A lot of pretty much everybody understands the difference between hard and soft water. A lot of people have water softeners in their house. Um, but what is all the extra like minerals and things that are being, that are in your water when that when the phosphate chemical mixes with that, that's going to kind of depend on where the pH falls out of the mixture. And so that's why it's really important for whoever is selling you chemicals, um, hopefully have a rep that they've tested your water and they know how their chemistry of their all their different chemicals they have are going to work with your water. Because if you want to do it right, they're going to have to adjust Typically, they're going to have to adjust their chemicals a little bit to work with your water. That makes sense. So I think today was a interesting podcast, um, a little different than what we normally do. This one was like really geared towards racing, and uh, I was really surprised to hear about Stu's wreck. I didn't know that he had that bad of a, a crash several years ago to the point where 
he's actually really lucky to be alive and still racing. Um, yeah, that was wild. Yeah, I've definitely never had that serious of a crash, not even close in a race car. Uh, obviously, I don't. Would race. you have gotten back in a car after that? I probably would not have. No. Yeah. Uh, and that's one reason why my dad always didn't want me to do open wheel. Um, but off air, Stu made a good point that that wasn't a sprint car that he was in. It was, it was a non-wing sprint car. So everything's the same, but it didn't have the wing on it. And so when the wing's off, then that now you don't have that cushioning when they're rolling over. It's just the frame, which is right above your head, is what's hitting the racetrack. Um, so that's a really good point to make that um, mm-hmm. it wasn't actually a sprint car. It was a non-wing sprint car. But, yeah, it always gets me thinking about racing whenever we talk to somebody. Um, and I, I've enjoyed I enjoy talking with Stu when he's dropping parts off and things and makes me always think about getting back in racing. But I would actually be – I know we're kind of geared towards our – or Plassey and coding side when we're on the podcast. But um, if anybody else that's listening to this because of Stu's on it and they're a racer, whether it's open wheel or um, more like dirt late model where I know most of those guys, uh, I would definitely be interested in having, having some more people on talking about racing. I enjoy that. Um, And just give a little bit different, different spin to our podcast. So it's not always uh, blasting and coatings. And hopefully inspires you for your future hobbies. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe someday I'll stop being so obsessed with blasting and coatings that there'll be some room for racing again. But I don't know. I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, They're trying to reel you back in. Yeah, I'm too obsessed with pre-treatment right now. So <laughs> <laughs> It's a little bit safer, I would say. Yeah, well, it, it depends. I mean, we have to ask Teague from last week, I guess. He's going to have to evaluate which one is safer working in the powder cutting shop or racing. Right. All right. Well, thanks for everybody for listening to Kazercast episode 12. Um, we are going to put together a slew of podcasts here. So we just did 11 a week ago. We got 12. We got a really, really interesting guest coming up next week. I'm not going to mention who it is, but it's going to be pretty epic. Um, so t- definitely tune into that one. And then we have a lot more coming up. Like we said, we think uh, Kazercast time of year is going to be winter. Um, I'm enjoying getting back in the swing of things. So keep listening. Keep following us on social. And there will be another podcast dropping soon. Hey, is everything working good for you? You need anything? Anything broke? anything leaking just make sure we stay on track with the yellows and everything will be fine little things lead to big things when you stay late tonight we need to get this job finished up overall I think everybody's doing a great job keep up the good work it's getting hot out so make sure you're drinking plenty of water I know this job's been difficult and everybody's getting frustrated we can't do it nobody else can that's the reason why the job's here because nobody else could get it figured out just keep working at it don't get frustrated we'll keep collecting data taking good notes and we'll get it figured out does anybody else have anything